Morning, my name's Sai. Great to be here speaking to you all. Hope you're, you're well. Just to add my uh, thanks to you all who have given faithfully and generously this morning. Let's just pray, actually, for the, the gift day offering, shall we? Lord Jesus, thank you, Lord, for the joy of being able to give back to you what you've given to us. And Lord, we just pray your blessing on this offering, Lord God, that it will enable us to do all that you have called us to as a church. So I pray even would you uh, miraculously multiply the money as we've given it, Lord God, so that it meets every need that we have as a church. So we look to you, Lord God, not to each other, but to you, Lord God, to do this. Because you're the one who is growing us. You're the one who has provided for us, Lord God. So we look to you to provide in this situation. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Just to remind you, if you, if you were unsure, that we, so we would ask to go for £100,000. That's what we're praying for, believing God for. But the actual total that we need for the work up there is 150,000, uh, as we made clear at the beginning. And we've got the extra 50,000 we're going to look to get from other sources uh, as well. But um, just so that's, that's clear. Anyway, Revelations. We're starting the series on Revelation. Uh, to start by recommending a book, I've read several books uh, on the uh, book of Revelation. This is by far the best book I have read on Revelations by Win, uh, William Hendrickson, and it's more than conquerors. So if uh, you're going to buy one book to read on the book of Revelation, I would say read this book. It's absolutely fantastic. You won't, you won't agree, or most likely there won't be everything in there you agree with. If you've, uh, if you've found a book in Revelation that, you've, uh, uh, that you agree everything with, then it's probably because you're just adopting what that, that author says. And don't read another book, otherwise you'll start to you know, get, get differences of opinion on some, some points. But that is a fantastic book. Anyway, as election fever takes hold of the country, I'm sure you're all very excited by it, but over these next few weeks, you're going to hear lots of things happening, aren't you, that this is a problem, and this is the solution to the problem, and those people are going to make things worse, and these people are going to make things better. Political ties can, can run deep in people's uh, lives uh, and, and basically affect how they view the world around them, whether they view the world with red spectacles, blue spectacles, yellow or green or whatever other colours there may be out there. And you know, that, that affects how people see the world around them. And when you come to a subject like Revelation, when we look at things like the end time, the same can be true for Christians. Their end time theology can then be the spectacles for which they view the rest of Scripture with and life around them. And just like with the elections here at Christchurch, we don't say vote for this party or vote for that party. We're not going to tell you to have this particular view or have that particular view. There's not a Christchurch view on end time theology, as it were. Obviously, as uh, I'm sharing, I'll share things from my perspective. Dunk will share things from his perspective, and Paul will share things from his, his perspective. But there's not an end time view that you have to have to be okay in, a, in this church. And likewise, when it comes to elections, where we say to people that you may disagree uh, politically with people, 
but make sure you're gracious and kind to each other. Can I say as we get into this subject, again, make sure you're gracious and kind to people that have differing views on the end-timed theology. That's very important. And because you may find, like myself, that if you were to look back over your life, if you go back in time, you'd end up arguing with yourself over the same, same points because you view things slightly differently as you've, as you've got older. If you're a visitor here, if you're a, a new Christian, if you've never really looked into the whole subject of uh, uh, end-timed theology, then you're in for a treat, actually. This is going to be a great series for you. You know, there's many theories out there in the world about the, how the world is going to end. What's going to, going to happen? Is it going to be a nuclear war that's going to wipe out life? Is there going to be an influenza outbreak, as there has been in my house this week, so only half of us are here? And uh, uh, is that going to wipe out the, uh, the earth? Or is there going to be a, uh, a meteorite that comes and destroys the earth? Or is there going to be scientists develop this black hole that all of a sudden implodes everything and we all die in that way? Will there ever be peace on earth? Will there ever be an end to all these troubles? Will the bad guys ever get the justice that they deserve? All these things are answered in the book of Revelation and more. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a little bit of background to the book of Revelation this morning and to the type of literature that it is. I'm then going to show you a short video uh, on that sums up the first half of the book of Revelations, just to give you some of the key themes and also uh, set some of the content. And then I'm going to very briefly, and I mean very briefly, go through Revelation chapter 1 with you, where we'll see that God is in control, that Christ is in the center of it all, and that we are more than conquerors in Christ. The first thing I'm going to do is ask Michelle to come up here and uh, to read to us from God's Word, Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book 
and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash round his chest. The hairs on his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Thank you, Michelle. Now the first word in the Greek in the book of Revelation is revelation, or apocalypsis, as a, uh, is in, in the Greek, which literally means a revealing or an unveiling of something. In this case, it was a revelation, unveiling of about Jesus Christ to his church via John. John, the apostle of Jesus, a much-loved disciple who was on the island of Patmos at the time when he received this revelation. Some people say, oh, no, it wasn't, wasn't John the disciple of Jesus. It was another John called John the Elder. However, up until the end of the third uh, century uh, AD, the early church held it to be John the Apostle, and the arguments about, oh, there's some style difference in the Greek are actually more easily overcome than they are if you introduce this other person called John the Elder, which there's no other uh, evidence for outside of uh, uh, claiming that. John was in Patmos uh, during the persecution that came under the rule of Domitius, and he most likely wrote the book in AD 96, 95, 96 AD. Some try and argue for an earlier date. However, again, that's more likely because of their end-time view that they're trying to fit revelations in. It fits better if uh, it was written before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. But the external uh, evidence and internal evidence would more likely point to this later date of 95, 96 AD. You see, under the rule of Emperor Domitius, emperor worship was enforced on the people. No other emperor had enforced it. Some had accepted it, some had tolerated it. Even Nero wasn't particularly bothered by it. But actually, under Domitian in AD 81, he made it part of... Uh, his rule that people had to offer a sacrifice to the emperor. You see, the Roman Empire was vast and very diverse. People were allowed to get on with their own religion, their own culture, could do what they like within the law of Rome, but as long as they only once a year would come and offer a sacrifice to the emperor and say that Domitian was their lord and their god, which, of course, the early Christians couldn't do that because as John 20 verse 28 makes clear, Jesus is our Lord and God. So the early church, they got heavily 
persecuted because they couldn't offer this sacrifice. Do you know, interestingly enough, our society today is incredibly diverse. We're in a very similar situation. And it's fine to believe whatever you like. But what's interesting is it's becoming increasingly not fine to say that what you believe is the truth against another truth. It'd be interesting to see over time where that goes. And in fact, our media is very intolerant of any other view other than the view that it wants to uh, portray to the world. So John was banished to Patmos. And he's given this prophetic revelation and is told to write it in a book so it can be a blessing to those who read it and to those who hear it as well. The book is supposed to be a blessing to the persecuted church for all who read it and hear it. So you'll notice as we go through this book over the next 12 uh, times that we speak through it, a few interruptions because Martin's coming to preach next time. I didn't think it'd be fair to say to Martin, Martin, can you preach on Revelation chapter 2 and 3 for me? But we're going to read through the book to you because this is God's word. What we say is just our attempt to try and explain it and apply it to your life. So as we go through the book, we're going to read it to you. and Because it, it's a blessing, the Bible says, as we hear it and listen to it. Now, sorry, the next five minutes, as I give this little background, uh, will probably be the, uh, the most technical of the whole, whole series. So if you find this next five minutes easy, then don't worry. The, the series will be quite good for you. But I'm going to do it because it will help you understand the, the, the book of Revelation. You see, the book's full of symbols. It's full of pictures. It's full of vivid language and numbers and stuff like that. And that's because it was written in a certain genre that the Jews at the time would understand. It's called apocalyptic uh, writing. And the style was where they would use vivid language to describe what was about to happen or what was already happening. A little bit like during the Cold War, you used to see lots of pictures of bears and dragons and, uh, and eagles and their claws would be missiles and stuff like that. Or there's another picture, if you want to move on to that, Grant. This is from 1902, and this is a picture of what was about to take place over China. And of course, uh, the lion representing England and the bear being Russia, and there's various other countries on there. Now, the original audience to the to, that uh, would receive an apocalyptic literature would have a good understanding what the imagery meant in there. They would be able to understand it, just like many of you actually, even looking at that, even if it didn't have the descriptions of the nations on there, would be able to work out what nation uh, was, was what, or at least some of them. And certainly in 1902, they would have had an even greater understanding. We would have, we'd have uh, the two-headed vulture there, we wouldn't have understood to be hungry Austria because they've split in, in our time. So uh, the original audience would have a good understanding of what the imagery uh, meant to them. And it was often deliberately written in this, this picture language that's slightly vague and they don't make it clear because they're under the yoke of oppression. And therefore, if you write, the Romans are going to do this, then, then actually the Romans will come and read that and say, right, we'll, we'll get you for that. So they, they deliberately make it vague. Revelations, you have to understand, is written in that style. So that has to be factored in 
to how we interpret the book. But just like any other book of the Bible, we have to go through a certain process and we must apply that to the book of Revelation. Otherwise, we come up with all sorts of fanciful things as well. So the way we have to do it is we have to say, what does the passage say and what did it mean to the original audience? Even in that passage that we read this morning, if you want to go on to the next slide, uh, Grant, it talks about the churches in Asia. Well, you might think Asia, oh, India, China. Well, actually, to the original audience, they knew that the, the uh, Asia meant Turkey, basically what is modern-day Turkey. That's what they would have understood by the churches in Asia. Secondly, what are the differences between them and us in terms of time? There's a, a couple of a thousand years in terms of culture. In terms of covenant, if you're reading something from the Old Testament, you have to apply that. And then you have to say, well, what is the principle or principles coming out of this passage that I'm reading? In order to be a principle, a biblical principle, it has to be timeless, relevant to any time in history. It has to not be culturally bound. It also has to be consistent with the rest of Scripture. So that's what you're looking to do. Fourthly... You then have to ask, well, does the New Testament teaching qualify or modify this principle that you're trying to pull out? Like in the Old Testament, for example, it says an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Well, my boys would love that. Okay, you hit me, I'll I'll hit you back sort of thing. But, uh, But actually, the New Testament modifies that teaching, doesn't it? Jesus says, if someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. So we have to look, is the New Testament modifying or qualifying this principle that I've pulled out? And then finally, how should Christians apply that principle to their life today? Okay, so that's a process that any passage of the Bible that you're reading that you should be looking to do to understand it correctly. Now when it comes to the book of Revelation, there are four main camps in how it's right to try and do this um, from the Bible text. The first one is futurist. Sorry, I did tell you it would get, this is the most technical, but just, just, the, just, just look at these terms, remember them if you want to, if you don't, don't worry about it. But futurist, that means basically everything after Revelations chapter 3 is going to happen at some point in the future just before the, ter- uh, the return of Christ. That's what they would believe about Revelations. The historicists would believe that after chapter 3 in Revelations is kind of a roadmap to the end of history. The partial preterists uh, would believe that basically the whole book, apart from the return of Christ, is uh, about the early church. And then the idealists would believe that everything in the book, apart from the first three chapters, are talking about symbols, about spiritual realities that are happening uh, in the world around. And there'll be various manifestations of them up until the return of, of Christ. Personally, when I came back to God, uh, 16, 17, I, was a, I, was a, I became a futurist, and I thought, oh yeah, everything's going to happen at some point in the future, my lifetime, hopefully, and you know that sort of thing or not. Uh, and, and then I moved on to becoming a historicist and uh, seeing, oh, it's a roadmap to, to, to history. And then I sort of settled on being an idealist, actually, and uh, seeing it as principles, but with, um, but with great respect for the partial preterists and some of the other views as well, which is why I said earlier, don't, don't 
be gracious with other people, otherwise you may find in a few years' time you actually have changed your view and that you would uh, be arguing with yourself uh, a, a different point of view. But anyway, there's one final approach that I should mention as well, largely due to some of the teaching coming out of America and that's on the internet, and that's what is called the dispensational uh, view, where it breaks history into seven different ages, or dispensations, to use the old uh, language. And we're currently in what they would call the dispensation of grace, which applies up to the end of Revelation chapter 3. And then at some point in the future, that, 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 that period will finish, and we'll enter what they call the dispensation of the kingdom. And then it's all really about physical uh, Israel once again as well. Now, there's varying views on all of these that I've mentioned. I'm just summarizing the the main teaching. Dispensationalism came about in the 19th century by a guy called J. Darby. And it would probably be unheard of today if it wasn't for the Schofield Bible. This is my granddad's Bible is one of the first study Bibles, and uh, Schofield himself was a dispensationalist. He believed in the, the seven ages, and he produced this Bible. And one of the things about it is you'll notice that the, his notes at the bottom are the same size as the biblical writing. Most modern um, Bible uh, uh, study Bibles, the writing is smaller. So as to say, look, the big writing is God's word. The smaller writing is just man's opinion on God's word. Also, Schofield presented this view as this is the view, not as this is my view as well. This Bible was very popular in the English-speaking world. came out in 1909, and um, my mum bought it for my dad in 1965 uh, there. And uh, that has influenced... Many people, sadly, many dispensationalist teaching teachers today are very quick to judge and be critical of people that differ from them, calling them heretical and all sorts of other names. If you're a dispensationalist here today, uh, then can I just encourage you, make sure you're gracious to other people of differing views. I would be uh, one of them. And also, uh, make sure you engage in some of the books that we recommend uh, through the, the series of this talk. This will be the first of many books that we recommend to you. Anyway, that's enough of me for the time being. Let's uh, show this video that will give you an overview of the first 11 books of Revelations. It's, it's, it's really good. The book of the Revelation of Jesus. The author of this book, how will the whole story turn out? John will tell us in the second half of the book of the Revelation. That's uh, on the uh, Bible Project. Uh, I can give people the uh, link to that afterwards. It's all on YouTube. So uh, they've done it for, I think, every book in the uh, Bible they've uh, done it for. So uh, yeah, really, uh, really helpful that is. Okay, so with the context in mind, let's, uh, let's move on to look at Revelation chapter 1, where we can see that God is in control, that Jesus is in the center of it all, and that the church is at the focus of his attention. A message comes from God to his church about Jesus via John, who himself is imprisoned for his faith. You know, in 
uncertain and turbulent times, John writes to the seven churches, as we saw there, seven being a number of completion or perfection, and it's a symbolic of the whole church, although it would have particular relevance for those seven churches it was written to. Now, um, John writes to them from the one who was and the one who is, and the one who is to come, the Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty God, he writes them. And from the seven uh, spirits that are, are there, you know, the Holy, representing the Holy Spirit, who is the perfect helper, and he's the one who can fill the whole church and help the church. And from Jesus, who is the uh, who has defeated death and is the ruler of the nations. Can you imagine what comfort that would have given to the early church? Would they have been despairing? You know, are we even going to exist? No one's been able to oppose Rome before. What's our future going to be? And then they get this letter from God saying, it's all right, I am in control. You know, sometimes in life we can feel like a little boat on, on the sea being tossed around by the waves. I don't know if you've ever been in a stormy sea. It's, it's, it's quite scary how powerful the sea is. Another time I can remember I was bodyboarding down in Cornwall and I got caught in a, in a riptide and no matter how fast I swam, I could only stay where I was. And as soon as I slowed down, I was going out further. I tell you, I was very pleased to get back onto solid ground. And we can feel like that in the world sometimes. But when that is the case, we need to come back to God and pray Psalm 61 verse 2, which says, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Jesus is the rock of ages. He is the one that we can turn to. No matter what you're going through personally, no matter what's going on, in the world around you, even if you're facing direct persecution because of your faith in Jesus, then remember, God is in control. He has given you his Holy Spirit to help you and that Jesus has conquered death and he will lead you safely through this life, even through death to life eternal. As the old hymn says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face and the things on earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That's what happened to John in the midst of his troubles. He was in the, on the Lord's day in the spirit. Notice even in his troubles, he made time to be in the spirit. The spirit when you're in the spirit, you're more likely to hear God and he's also there to help you. But anyway, Jesus meets them and John turns and he sees one like the Son of Man. Not only was that Jesus' favorite expression of himself, but it brings in the prophecy of Daniel chapter 7 about one like the Son of Man who would be king over the nations. And Jesus speaks a prophetic word to him and is dressed in a long robe, which many would see to be the robe of the high priest. Jesus is our prophet. He is our priest. He is our king. And he is one whose hair and face is white, white like snow, and white as worn like snow. And that's a symbol of his purity, his moral purity, as well as the fact that... Um, 
uh, of his wisdom as well, being a grey hair, being a sign of age in the Bible. It's a, it's a sign of his purity and wisdom. And his eyes are ablaze like fire. Not only the internal glory of him shining out of his eyes, but it's a little bit like this. Married men, you'll you appreciate this little uh, way of explaining it. You know, you can be quite happily sitting there doing something or, or, or doing nothing. And then all of a sudden you sort of feel a little bit cold and a little bit hot and there's like something on the back of your head and you think it's like I'm being watched and you look round and over there your wife has come in and she's staring at you and she's got that look in her eyes men you know what I'm talking about here don't you she's got that look in her eyes and all of a sudden you sort of stand up and you give a half smile of ah, hi and uh, your mind's racing thinking what have I done what haven't I done what should I have done? And uh, all the while you're thinking this, you know that those eyes, they can pierce through you. They see right through you. They know even what you're thinking there. There's no hiding from her there because she knows you. It's like that. That's what it's saying. Eyes of fire. That he can burn up all the rubbish and he can see things as they clearly are. Feet burnished bronze, again, shining with glory, but bronze being a weapon, a strong metal, a metal of war. Talking about Jesus being able to trample his enemies under his feet. Just like his sword comes out of his mouth with his very words, he can destroy his enemy and his face shining like the sun in its full day, in its full glory. John is recording a vision of the majesty and the glory of the conquering Jesus who is at the center of it all and who is coming back for his people and to put an end to all his enemies. My friends, in the midst of trouble, in the midst of difficulty that you're facing, know that Jesus is coming back for you, that in him you are more than conquerors. You are conquerors in Christ. That's one of the key themes of Revelation, which is why it's the title of our series, Conquerors in Christ. You see, Jesus is the first and the last. He is the living one. He is the one who has power over death. And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, then you need to learn from John's response that he falls dead at his feet and also be warned from his description as well. You see, when Christ comes back, it is too late to try and get right with him then. It's too late. Now, today, is the season where you can receive forgiveness, where you can receive his hand of grace, where he will lift you up. Today is a day of salvation, the Bible tells us. So Christ is at the center of it all. But you know, Christ is at the center of it all, but his focus is on his church. The seven lampstands that are there is, again, the perfect number to shine out the light of Christ into the world around. The church is made up of people from all nations, Jew, Gentile, young, old, and it's all people who have been loved and freed from our sins by his blood, made into a kingdom of priests for his God. The seven stars there, this, some people differ on this. The, the word for angels uh, that is used there means messenger. 
So some people say, ah, that means pastor or elders of a church rather than than angels. The problem with that is every other time uh, in the book of Revelation that word is used, it's clearly referring to angels. So it's probably best to view it as angels. But what is is clear from the book is that those angels have uh, responsibility for that church And also, they kind of represent that church in some way. So even these, they're in Jesus' hand. They're dear to him. My friends, how important is the church of God to you? Can you just take it or leave it, depending on how busy you are, depending on what's going on? What are you modeling to your children about how important the church of God is to you? The one who is in the center of heaven. His focus is on his church. His eye is on the church. How important is the church to you? You know, my cousin got married last August, and it was a wonderful day. There was, a, there was beautiful food. There was a lovely location. It was, they were both Christians. It was just such a wonderful celebration to be there. And we are, but the day was all about them, really. Whilst there's all this other nice stuff to enjoy, it was all about them. And we had to occasionally remind our kids, actually, come on, guys, it's about them. Your enjoyment of these things mustn't take away from their enjoyment of the day. And you must remember, you've only got these things because of them. My friends, we can so easily get distracted by the things of this world when actually it's all about Christ and it's all about his bride because his focus is on his people, the church. How important is the church to you, my friends? In the midst of trouble that the church faces in this world, the book of Revelation is given to be a blessing that encourages us to see that the God who never changes, is in control of it all. That Jesus is victorious over his enemies and that his church is the focus of his attention and that we are actually conquerors in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you know, I would love to talk to you afterwards. I really would. He loves you, as we have seen, with an everlasting love. And he wants to meet with you. He's not, he's not uh, uh, rough with us. He takes us as we are, and he lovingly changes us. And so if you're here today and you don't, don't know Jesus, please come and speak to me afterwards. I'd love to, to talk to you about that. I'm going to invite the band back up here. You have been listening to a sermon from Christchurch Hailsham. For more information or to contact us, visit ChristchurchHailsham.org.